Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 31 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we welcome a guest whose background in golf is both long and rich. He's one of the few players who's been a professional, then an amateur, then a professional again, and it's a career that has given him some interesting insights into the game. We'll meet David Eager in just a moment. But before that, my co-hosts, as always, from the US, blogger, commentator, architect, critic, critic Jeff Shackleford. Shack, I'm really looking forward to chatting to David today. Yes, it should be. Uh, he's, he's, he's a fascinating guy, and uh, it's, I, I hope people get to uh, know a little bit more about him beyond uh, uh, what he's become uh, known for in the last few months. <laughs> Indeed, which we'll touch on as we go through it. From here in Australia, no doubt excited Mike Clayton with the Australian Masters being played right in his backyard this week and at one of his favourite golf courses, Royal Melbourne. Clayton, it's good to have you aboard. I'm guessing you enjoyed a good day of spectating yesterday and getting ready to do it all again today. Yeah, thanks, Rod. It was uh, it was terrific golf yesterday. It was The, the weather's been, even for Melbourne, it's been terrible this past month and it wasn't any better yesterday, but the golf was tremendous. I watched Jared Lowell play his first round. I think in 18 months, and he, he played some beautiful golf. Shot 72, one over mm-hmm. on a difficult afternoon, which was a, which was a tremendous score, really. It was good to watch that. Yeah, not a, not a terrible score. And he played, of course, with your one of your business partners, Jeff Ogilvy, one of your design partners in the firm. So it must have been a nice day for you to get out and experience that. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on everything, David, and, and we are going to chat about today. To this week's guest, the man partly responsible for the Tiger Woods rules debacle at the Masters earlier this year, which we'll find out about in uh, in just a short moment. But that's such a small part of what makes David Eager interesting, and we're hoping to touch on quite a few topics with David as the hour unfolds. David Eager, welcome to the show. Really good to have you aboard. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you, Red. I'm uh, delighted to be here. David, I wanted to start with the thing I've mentioned there in the intro. Of course, the Tiger Woods rules debacle at the Masters this year. You did go through how that unfolded for you in a My Shot article in the US Golf Digest in this month. For anybody who missed it, just give us a quick thumbnail sketch. It involved bags of tomato soil, gardening and landscaping, some television coverage missed, rewinding of tapes and all sorts of things. Tell us how that unfolded that you were the man who rang in with the Tiger Woods rules infraction. Well, as you said, it was it was gardening. It was spring here, and my wife had me doing some stuff outside. But uh, every chance I, I I could get when she wasn't looking, I was ducking indoors to uh, to watch the uh, the uh, Friday telecast of the Masters on uh, ESPN here in the state. And uh, in the uh, marvels of technology, uh, the digital recorder was on, and I. I noticed Tiger was making a semi-charge on the back nine Friday. He got it to, I think, four or five under par, something like that. And then she she caught me, and I had to go back to work. And uh, when I came back in, he had he had dropped a couple strokes, or dropped yeah, I guess dropped a couple strokes. And so I I rewound the recording and saw that uh, that he'd ricocheted his third off the flagstick at number 15. And uh, I just watched him drop because I figure he only made a bogey on that hole just to six, so he must have had a heck of a of a uh, fifth shot. And in watching that, it didn't look like he dropped the ball as near as possible to the spot where he had played his third from. So I rewound it again and again and again, and sure enough, there was a, a significant uh, difference between where he played his third and where he dropped the ball and played his what he thought was his fifth shot. So uh, 
I pondered that for just, you know, 30 seconds or so. And by this time, Tiger, because I was recording, Tiger was was on the 17th hole. I called the uh, a fellow who I knew was, was on the rules committee there, worked for the PGA Tour. He is leaving the golf course, uh, but he said that he would communicate with the uh, chairman of the competitions committee there, Fred Ridley, uh, which I guess they did via text. And uh, I then uh, persuaded my wife to allow me to watch Tiger finish his round because I thought that there would be a mass group of uh, green jackets uh, from the competitions committee in the club there to uh, talk to Tiger about what had gone on on 15. But alas, uh, Tiger popped out of the scoring tent and gave an interview to uh, Tom Rinaldi of ESPN and uh, when somehow it came out that he had what he had done on 15, and he said he he dropped the ball a, a couple paces or a couple yards back from where he played his third shot on 15 because he didn't want to hit the flagstick again. And with that, I was afraid he was going to get disqualified, even though I had I had um, sent in my or I had made the the phone call, but uh, so I. I just sort of pondered the rest of the night, got up early the next morning, played golf, uh, finished about 11 o'clock. They, uh, here at the, in the clubhouse, they had the, uh, they had the, uh, golf channel and the SPN on, and they were talking about this thing going on with Tiger Woods on the 15th hole the Friday and, uh, the interview by, uh, Fred Ridley trying to explain what he had not done or had done. And, uh, of course, the two-stroke penalty came out. I guess they, uh, they reasoned that since they had in the pipeline my phone call, questioning has dropped to a rules committee member, even though they didn't make the decision immediately to penalize them, they could still revert back to the phone call, call a committee error, and put two strokes on them and keep them in the tournament, which I thought was the right ultimately the right decision to make because of my phone call to the rules committee. But uh, it certainly was a convoluted and uh, um, awkward way of going about it. You know, there were the talking heads with Golf Channel and ESPN and CBS were calling for Tiger to, to withdraw or disqualify himself. Uh, there was, there's, you know, the, the gamut runs from the, the Masters was trying to cut, somehow cover up the uh, the bad drop in the penalty to they didn't know what they were doing they it, it just it was a myriad of, of 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 things going on about Tiger's actions and the and the inaction of the rules committee of the Masters tournament perfect. so that's that's about it in <laughs> perfect storm of bad decisions I think uh, <laughs> really at, at the end of yeah the they they also they, they ultimately got to the right conclusion but the way in which they went about it certainly was was uh, awkward mm. uh, the most impressive thing about that to me David is that you convinced your wife to let you watch the golf of all the things you did that day to me that's the most impressive <laughs> that you, you managed to get away uh, well, with that yeah you know, I mean, Marriage works in mysterious ways. You've got to do a lot of things with your wife and for your wife 
and then in order to watch some golf on Friday afternoon Indeed. sometimes. I, so. I, I hope the tomatoes <laughs> you planted have since uh, sprung and you've been enjoying them in salads ever since. Shaq, I think I cut you off there. I was hoping to hear your you uh, a really good yeah. question to ask, David, about <laughs> this whole debacle. Because it's been dissected, hasn't it, Shaq, from every which angle, except for perhaps this one. Well, one of the things that we see with these phone-in rulings, uh, David, is uh, uh, players are, just get so upset by them and they always make – uh, generally, they make comments about the people who call in. They, they, they I, kind of the same thing that bloggers get. You know, it's some person in the uh, basement in their pajamas with no life, and um, they get they get very hostile about people who make these calls. And I'm I'm curious uh, how you've been received uh, by other players. I know you're you're really on the Champions Tour. You're not out with the young guys anymore who who really seem to get upset about this. But I'm curious what kind of Feedback or or uh, uh, looks you've gotten since since it became known that you you uh, called this in, even though it ended up helping save Tiger. Well, yeah, it, it is. It, it, it's a controversial thing. Um, a lot of you read that a lot of players think that only only the rules people who are at the tournament site can can uh, apply a penalty. Um, but then, you know, golf is played over at least a hundred acres by, you know, usually between, you know, 70, 80, all the way up to 156 players per course. Uh, there are three balls in play in every group usually, and, and it, it's impossible to have eyes on every ball all the time. And that's why golf has this reputation as a gentleman's game and players call penalties on themselves. And I still believe that to be true. However, it's a, it's a, it's a confusing game with respect to the rules. There are exceptions and all these different things, subsections of rules and decisions. So it'd be, it'd be really difficult for a player to know all the rules. And so I think that you, you use the information that you can, um, um, who's, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you say that only the player can call a penalty on himself? The, his fellow competitors are unable to. They had eyes on his ball, but, but where do you draw the line? Is it only players? Is it only the players who, who um, are playing in the group? Is it only the rules officials who actually saw it that can call it? Can a spectator get involved or a player's caddy get involved? So um, I come out um, that you use whatever resources you have. You're obligated, a uh, rules official is obligated to check out all those uh, inquiries or questions he might get either from a TV viewer or a spectator or a caddy or another player and sort them out to protect the field. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's where I come out. And, I, and granted, I, you know, I spent my, uh, formidable years as a rules official. So I sort of understand it from a different, I have a different perspective of it. Yeah. And is that right or wrong? Who's, who's to say? Um, uh, I was trying, you know, the, I was trying to save Tiger. Uh, I knew he was going to be penalized because the drop was incorrect. And, it was it was of, of importance to me to get right to the rules guys there before Tiger returned signed his, his card and returned it. 
And uh, it didn't matter if it was Tiger Woods or if it was Doug Ford or who it is. Um, you know, I, I made the decision that I was going to get involved because I wanted to avoid a disqualification for the player. That was all. I'm sorry? Well, I was going to say, do you think Tiger appreciates that? Uh, that you that 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 was the uh, the way you you came about uh, calling this in. Well, I think if he knows, I mean, I've, I've been led to believe he doesn't know anything about it. That he was told by Fred Ridley that he was this is what happened. You're okay. We made a decision. You're okay with it. So I don't know that Tiger knows the facts behind the the, the Masters ruling. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. You know, this all started out way back in 1987 uh, when when NBC replayed Craig Stabber kneeling on a towel on yeah. Sunday. He had done it Saturday afternoon. It wasn't on the live telecast Saturday. But on Sunday, they replayed the highlights from the previous day, and there Craig is uh, kneeling down on a towel to keep his yellow trousers from getting soiled. And... Uh, Unfortunately, that's a two-stroke penalty. He didn't apply that to the Saturday score, so he's disqualified for, for not including the penalty and turning the score in lower than he had shot. And then it, it was exasperated a little more, and I think in the in the early 90s when when uh, first and second round coverage was shown uh, was starting to be shown. And Paul Azinger was shown at Doral uh, playing a ball from the water hazard on the 18th hole, and he kicks some coral out of his way, and you're not allowed to move a loose impediment or prove your stance, obviously, in a, in a hazard. And so someone from, I think, Denver called on that one. So once it seems these things see, they seem to be cyclical. Uh, and all this stuff that's happened with Tiger has is, is been unfortunate, and it's been after the fact that he's done something, um, it, it's just been a, a, a lot of coincidence. Hmm. And I don't think it's anything more than that. <laughs> to, to get off the whole rules thing, which we'll do shortly, but uh, the problem you've got, David, if you if you disallow um, TV viewers calling in, you could end up with a situation, could you not, where somebody has clearly breached a rule and it's there for everyone to see on TV, and yet if you've disallowed that, then that result can stand and that taints that tournament, doesn't it? That's the danger. If you don't take the evidence from everywhere, including television, then you can have something that has clearly been a breach, but it has to stand yeah. because you can't take the evidence from TV. Yeah, that, that's that's one very valid uh, point. And uh, it sort of smacks of, of, of the other uh, sports, we use, professional sports you see on television, where, where in our country, football, basketball, and baseball players are... are are trying to get away if they breach a rule if, if they're almost trying to get away with something unless the referee sees and calls it and as i said there there everyone has in golf everyone has their own ball in play in these other sports there's only one ball in play uh so it's a lot different you know it's just a lot different and and um i i I think it's a very popular game because of Tiger Woods and it's being shown on television a lot more. And are those players being singled out? Well, for rules, they may be singled out, but they're also singled out by television, which ultimately pays them more money in the way of sponsorship dollars and things like that. So the, the end result, the net result for all these players is they're making a lot more money because of television 
And if people are interested to watch and, and call in supposed rules violations, well, that's just a that's just a result of golf being popular and on television a lot more. They do have plenty of time to learn the rules, David. There's no, <laughs> they're not doing twelve-hour days <laughs> every day of the week, so it's, it's yeah, too much to. That, ask. That's true. You know, I, I've always thought that if you learn how to hit that stinger two iron like somebody does, two hundred and fifty yards down the middle of the fairway, when need be, then then. You know, what's the problem with learning the rules? It, it, it effectively makes you an even more complete professional. Right. Or call on an official, who, and there's plenty of them at every tournament that these, that these guys are playing. They're, they're, yeah. not, they're not lacking a, uh, a backstop. Clates. Yeah, David, do you think that after you know, a, a player gets a retrospective penalty and is therefore disqualified after he's signed his card, do you think there ought to be a rule that allows the committee to add the penalty but keep the player in the tournament? Well, I think in the instance when when nothing is known about it and it's brought to the attention of the rules committee that this player may have breached a rule and, in fact, after investigating it, he has, I don't, and the player's returned to score, I don't think there's anything that can save the player. That's sort of like, this is the line of DMARC, this is, this is the timeline on this, and and it goes all the way up through the round. It, it seemed to it, it it's that timeline has served served uh, the rules very well, served competitive golf very very well, yeah. and uh, to to mess around with that stuff just because professionals don't know the rules, I, I you know I don't agree with that. I don't I have sympathy, but I also think that the rules have to be very uh, finite and adhered to in order to play the game properly. Okay, fair enough. Clayton, we had just the last thing on this, David. We had the two guys whose names escape me for the moment, who, 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 two former USGA rules officials who've had a go at writing two new simplified sets of rules without going into details of what they've done or whatever. Do you think there's scope for the rules to be simplified? This is the It's been the call in golf, hasn't it, for the last few years? Probably really ramped up when the Dustin Johnson thing happened at the PGA a couple of years ago. Oh, the rules right. are too complicated. They've got to be simplified. What's your take on that? Well, I wish they could be simplified. The two individuals are David Hayes and John Moore. Thank you. <laughs> but, and I know, and I know they're, 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 they're in well into the project. Um, uh, what I've heard uh, an example would be there being you, you would eliminate dropping the ball altogether. You just place the ball, so you only go through one step to get a ball back in play. That let's say you you hit into a water hazard or have an unplayable lie or a ground under repair, something like that. So from that perspective, yeah, that would not only simplify, but it seemed seemingly would speed up golf. But um, it's. It's going to be very hard to simplify the rules um, from where they are. There was a major, um, uh, major uh, attempt to do it for the 1984 rules of golf, and they were simplified some. I think they went from like 39 or 40 rules or something down to 34. But uh, since that time, there really hasn't been any simplification. It's a, it's a confusing game. That, that, that you know that that old philosophy of well, play the ball where you find it all the time is, is impossible to do. Because if you hit it on a sprinkler head, you, I guess you can take it unplayable, or you can maybe break your 
hand trying to hit the next shot. So that doesn't quite seem fair either. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to see. I'd love to see their first draft, their draft of it. I'm sure I, I know both of them, and they're both very, uh, very intelligent, very savvy guys. And, and so I'm, I'm sure it, uh, they'll somewhere, somewhere out of the box. But uh, at the same time, they'll. It'll be very interesting to take a look at it when they come come up with it. We'll email you the link to their website. There's lot, they've got both sets of rules up there and lots of discussion about it, so you're probably one who can follow it more closely than I. I must admit that the rules sometimes I find somewhat confusing. Of course, the problem is, David, isn't it, that as soon as you make a change to the rule here, it has an effect down here that you can't foresee until it happens in play, and that's how we've got to this situation of having a huge book of decisions, isn't it, that this is the rule. Well, hang on, what about in this circumstance, this circumstance, and this circumstance? It's difficult to apply in each of those circumstances uniformly, so you have to have decisions that say, well, if this circumstance plus this one equals this sort of outcome. And that's how we've kind of got it. Because of the unique nature of the game. There's no lines. There's no, you know, it's not like a tennis court where it's very simply in or out. It's, uh, that's the issue with the game. Let's move on uh, from the rules, David. There's a bunch of stuff we wanted to talk to you about. And I'd like to start with this notion. Okay. Obviously, you, you turned professional. You obviously had an amateur career. Turned professional. Didn't do particularly well first time around. Got your amateur status back. Went off and became a rules official on the PGA Tour and then later at the the USGA, and then later in life, after 50 or approaching 50, decided to turn professional again. Turn me th- talk me through some of that decision process, because they're not small decisions, any of those, <laughs> are they, to turn pro in the first place, to give up being a professional, and then to have another go at it. None of those are small decisions. Well, no, they weren't, but they were sort of, uh, I was sort of forced into some of it. The way it worked, you're right, I, I, I thought I was a pretty good player, qualified to play a store, found out pretty quickly I, I did not have the talent or ability or whatever it would take to make it. So then upon being about 28 or 29 years old, uh, I decided, gee whiz, you know, I gotta, I gotta make some money. I gotta, I gotta pay for rent or pay for food or pay for a car and all that stuff. And, um, I just, Luckily, knew I, I, I kind of enjoyed the rules stuff, and I wanted to be around golf. And I lived in the same town where the PGA Tour was headquartered. I knew the head rules guy, and so I begged him for a job, and he gave me a job. And I really enjoyed the rules part of it. Stayed there for many years, and then went to work for the USGA, and then came back when Pynchon became the commissioner of the tour to work for him again, and. Um, then I was playing for the, I got my amateur status back when I worked for the tour, but, but golf, uh, started to become fun as I, as I got my amateur status back and played in some, some big events and, and, and had a little success. And, uh, so then I got to be in my late forties and I said, well, maybe with, I've been working with Ledbetter for maybe 15 years. I said, well, maybe I can play a little better now. So why not give this a try? So I, I was turning, I turned 49, qualified to play the Champions Tour or Senior Tour when I turned 50, and you know I, I've, I've been very fortunate and had a, had a good 12-year run here. So it's uh, some you know my, my early decisions were based on lack of talent, necessity to uh, to, to feed my, to feed myself and put a roof over my head. And the, the rest of it, I sort of follow my instinct with it. So now I'm just about 62, and I'm ready to really and ready to wind down. So get your amateur status back uh, again. 
It's been, yeah, no, I, I, I know they won't give it to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> two, two, two bites of the cherry, you don't get a third. David, what changed yeah. between the first time around and the second one? You've been very successful on the Seniors slash Champions Tour. What changed between the first one and the second one? Did all those years of watching high-level golf up close as a rules official help you I think that, to be better? I think that was part of it. I think, I think sitting in a golf cart for years watching tour players play and seeing – you know, the successful ones drove the ball in play, drove the ball in the fairway, could hit the greens much easier, great short games if they missed miss the green. The, 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 the rookie players, the fellows that struggled, they were just the opposite. You know, only one out of three would hit the fairway, only one out of three on the green, always struggling. So, And as I said, David Ledbetter was extremely uh, helpful to me uh, when I got my amateur status back. And uh, I, I think that he really helped me. And uh, so I think the combination of, of those two things, Ledbetter and watching good players being around them, and then gaining some, uh, some real, you know, later in life interest in playing competitively again. I sort of lost that for a while and then got to play enough amateur golf and played enough with, with the likes of, of some pretty good players coming up through college and amateur golf like uh, uh, Phil Mickelson or like David Duvall and, and o- over there like Luke Donald or o- in, uh, in the U.K., Luke Donald. And, and, and I can remember playing uh, with uh, Aaron Baddeley, too. So, so it, it, you know, I, I, was, I was playing with much younger guys or against much younger guys, but still I could compete with them when they were younger, younger guys. Mm, which is pretty impressive. Clates to pros, and especially young pros, spend enough time watching other pros. David's really just told us, hasn't he, that that's part of the key to success, to, to watch how it's done. And not a lot of it goes on. I remember you saying that you used to go out and watch Seve, as did Greg Turner, just because he was such a magician. Should young pros take that on board? Is there something to be said for going out and following Jeff Ogilvy this afternoon if you're a 20-year-old thinking about a professional career? Well, absolutely. I don't I, think there's anything... Yeah, I think that's a great thing to do. Sorry, I was yeah, just trying to get Clay's thoughts because I know he's talked about this before, and I find it really interesting. Yeah, and we used to—I mean, I used to spend hours watching Graham Marsh and Bruce Crampton on the practice fair when I was a kid, and even when I was a pro, if Marshy was hitting balls, or I mean, obviously Greg was impressive to watch Norman, but you know, to watch Graham Marsh hit balls when he was at his best was was a tremendous education. And if I was a young pro and I was I, I was playing this morning at Royal Melbourne, I would absolutely go and watch Adam Scott play. And, you can only learn from watching the best guys play the game and, and play it well. And you know, it's, it, it was interesting. I watched Matt Goggin play yesterday morning. He's a tremendous player. He nearly won the Open that Watson lost to Stuart Sink. And you know, you watch Matt, and his body language is terrible, and he, you know, he putts poorly. But you know, and, and Jeff was going through the same thing yesterday in the afternoon, putting poorly, shooting three shots more than he should have, as Matt did. But Jeff's body language, you know, he's terrific. There was a kid who had a terrible temperament as a teenager, but he was just terrific. You, know, you, you didn't know yesterday whether he was shooting 66 or 71, and, but, but Matt's body language is terrible. And, you know, he's a terrific guy. And I, I really like him. But like Matt, where you just, you know, just, you'd be 38 years old, get, get it together. But, but you know, you know so, so if you'd taken a 17-year-old kid out there yesterday, and they'd watch both those players, both world-class players. They would clearly see the difference between you know, positive you know, body language and terrible body language. And 
you know, I, I, I know what's going on in Matt's head because I used to play the same. It was just, you know, it's frustrating. And, but you watch Jeff do the same thing and you can see why well, one of them's one of US Open and one of them hasn't. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about this, David. Have you noticed, um, given obviously how much golf you've watched and played, is there are there guys that mature and do well? And Matt, we had Matt on the show. Matt is a fabulous player. And Clates is right. Amazing ball striker, isn't he, Clates? You hear the contact from Goggin. He's one of those very pure sort of ball strikers. But his results probably don't reflect his talent, uh, in fairness. And it's probably because of attitude. Have you seen players go from the regular tour to the Champions Tour mature and improve simply by prove, improving their attitude? Oh, yeah, I, I think uh, a, a great example of, of that would be a, a fellow named Michael Allen. Michael played uh, Asia, played the regular tour, played what's now the Web.com tour, and uh, never won. And I don't, he's, he's up there, you know, in uh, how many, six, seven hundred tournaments without winning. Came out, on the first tournament he played on the Champions Tour was a major, the senior PGA, and he won. He, he's probably won a handful or more times than that now, but uh, I think he he had such a comfort level because he had played on the regular tour or was playing on the regular tour and got out to the Champions Tour and he saw that he was now a big fish in a little pond and and certainly had the talent to uh, to win and and so you you see you see a lot of guys who sort of flounder, uh, particularly when you turn forty. 45 years old and you're still playing the regular tour, you know, you, you've lost a step or a half step. And on the Champions Tour, you, you, you're, you're a step ahead when you turn 50 and start playing there. And the window closes, as it has on me. And when you get to be 60, unless you're a, 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 a Hale Irwin, uh, you know, you've, you've got probably 10 years, 12 years maybe, to really be in your prime. And, uh, so, yeah, I, yeah, I see a lot of guys who, who are sort of journeymen like a Michael Allen and get out on the Champions Tour and bang, they're, they're big successes. Rocco Media, for example, just, just turned 50. So, yeah, I think that that's just the evolution and how the Champions Tour works. Jack. Uh, David, uh, I only see you... Uh at the, uh, the Champions event here in Southern California, which I think is one of the more uh, successful events. Um, but with the news this week that the original senior tour event, the uh, Liberty Mutual uh, Legends of Golf is uh, in trouble and, and Liberty Mutual is leaving after an unbelievably long run for a sponsor, uh, I'm curious, what you, you know, what, where is this tour going? And, and you know, we have a lot of young guys who are making a lot of money now who may not play when they turn 50. Uh, is the tour, is it healthy? Is it, um, and, and where do you see it headed the next few years? Well, I, I think it's, 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 it's as healthy now as it, as it has been since the economic downturn back in 2008. Um, when I turned 50 back in 2002, I think there were almost 40 tournaments. And it's gradually uh, decreased. Uh, it went down, I think, 23, uh, three or four years ago in 2008, and it's, it's like 26 or 25, 6 or 7 now. So there have been tournament sponsors who have left, more who have left than have been, that have come back on or come on new. 
uh, it's, but it's sort of like how the regular tour is. You know, they, they'll lose a sponsor. In Liberty Mutual's case, it was the original first-ever Champions Tour event. 31 years Liberty Mutual had been around. And it was just a, a, a corporate decision that they didn't want to spend that much money on entertainment and golf. Uh, unfortunately for, for the Champions Tour, it was an inaugural tournament way back in 1981 or two, whenever it was. And it, 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 uh, had, uh, several divisions, if you will, like a, mm. like a 70 and over division and a right. this and that division. They even got Palmer and player to, or, or Nicholas and, and player to play as a team in one of those divisions. So it's an unfortunate thing. It's a very popular tournament among the players because it's a team thing. It's a little more relaxed than going out there by yourself and having to, having to finish yeah. every hole. Um, and, and hopefully it will come back with another, uh, with a different sponsor, uh, sometime soon. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a unfortunate thing. Sort of a black eye, I think, for the Champions Tour. At least for 2014. Yeah, and certainly that would be proven by the one two-line statement I think that the PGA Tour released about what's a pretty, obviously significant announcement. And I realized during the week I had to write a little piece about it. I didn't realize uh, that uh, our own Peter Thompson and Kel Nagel finished second. It was a four-ball event in that very first one behind Sam Snead and Garden Garden Dickinson. Sam Snead birdied each of the last three holes to pip them by a shot. So they uh, wow. They uh, they had a part in that. The Champions Tour generally, or the Seniors Tour as we used to know it, David, uh, was driven initially by the fact that it had the big name players, and it was a bit of a nostalgic thing. People wanted to see Sam Snead still play. They wanted to see Jack Nicklaus play after fifty and Arnold Palmer. All right. What happens going into the future? Greg Norman's never taken to the Champions Tour. He doesn't need the money. Those guys kind of needed the money, or they could still do with the money. Tiger Woods, I don't think, is going to have any interest in playing golf after 50 uh, as far as the money goes. Has the Champions Tour long-term got a future, Given if you accept that it is personality-driven, essentially, as far as fan interest goes? Well, well you're absolutely right. You know, it, it sort of started with Nicholas. When, when Nicholas turned 50, uh, he would play... Champions Tour events, but first one to really play a limited schedule upon turning 50. And I remember him early on leading the tournament or winning the tournament. And he, he answered someone's question, well, I beat these guys in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. So, why, you know, there's no real incentive for me to come out here and beat them again in my 50s. So, and, and Bragg, of course, has, has had a, 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 a brouhaha going with, with Fincham since the World Tour way back in the early 90s, and so Greg doesn't want to play. Um, Watson played a little more, and Tom's now 63, so and going to be a Ryder Cup captain, so his schedule is, is greatly diminished or decreased. The uh, uh, big name we have is uh, Fred Couples. I guess he'd be one of our biggest draws. He doesn't play a whole lot because of his bad back and some other things, but... Uh, and VJ is the most recent big name to turn 50, and, and he, he did play in Hawaii. He's got a house over on uh, the Big Island in Hawaii and came over and played in Oahu. Um, and I, he said he's not going to play very much, but, uh, but all the guys who have played well in their late 40s on the regular tour have stayed and played the, the regular tour as long as they could. And before coming over and playing a regular Champions Tour schedule, be it 
Fred Funk or or uh, Kenny Perry. Uh, I, I, there, there are a lot of lot of players like that. There is there is a lot more money in this uh, generation of regular tour player. Uh, you know, purses went from four hundred thousand dollars back in the Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson heyday. They're now you know six to ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they've got plenty of money. I think it's just that their competitive juices are still alive. When they turn fifty, do they want to come over and play some uh, some golf? It's 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 more competitive. I think I think most guys upon turning fifty and getting out there, I think they realize, hey, this is competitive. Mm. This isn't a deadlock cinch. I'm going to win every week. Mm. And you know, you look at some of the guys who've been out there now for a while, like Steve Elkington. And Aussie there, but you know Steve has had some success, but he hasn't won. Mm. Played a full schedule, but hasn't. So it's. I think the competitive juices still have to be there. Clearly, guys who have been successful on the regular tour don't need the money unless they've been divorced three times or something. <laughs> so there's a bit of that, isn't there? There's no shortage of uh, of those guys. Clayton, yeah. You're- Clay, yeah. you're a recent winner on our senior tour down here. I know you, you sort of play that. What's your take on senior golf as a player? It seems to me, and I think David's made a good point there, Champions Tour's got a couple of problems. One being, with the fitness regime of players of the last 20 or 30 years, guys at 50 are still possibly competitive. Tom Watson nearly won the British Open at 59. We're not going to see that every week, but 50 might not be the right age anymore, Clates. Well, I think it should be older or younger. Uh, maybe older. I know that a lot of guys campaigned for younger. I know Finchie campaigned for 45 for a while when he was 43. Well, everyone campaigns for 45 when they're 45. But, um, I mean, VJ's playing here this week at Royal Melbourne. He's exactly. still, yeah. you know, as Jeff noted on his blog, he had 28 people watching him yesterday. Uh, but, <laughs> um, yeah, VJ, Too many. VJ still plays terrific golf. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, yeah, you get to 50. When I was a kid, you, you know, I saw Graham Mars struggling at, 46 and 47 on the on the regular tour in Australia, and you think oh, he can't play anymore. But then you know you get to 50, and you think, wow, these guys are pretty good. And Marshy said, you know, he said you'd be amazed how good how well these guys play in America. And Marshy, of course, played tremendous golf after after he was 50. So you know, just because you're 50 doesn't mean you can't play good golf. And so it's, what about fans though? Are you interested in the Champions Tour, Clates, as a golf fan? I think that's probably the um, problem, you know well. I don't watch it on TV. I, I mean, I'm interested in how Peter Senior plays because yeah. he's a friend of mine, and I'm, you know, it's a, it's an interesting take on his career because he was such a tremendous player here, and he's gone there and played some fantastic golf. But won the Australian Open last year, Clates at the age yeah. of 53. Yeah, <laughs> and um, can't win on the Champions Tour. Uh, well, yeah, which tells you something about the Australian Open, perhaps. Um, I'm I'm not interested in watching it on TV, but if it came to town, I would love to go and watch it. You know, I love watching guys play live. I just don't have, you know, as much passion for watching on TV because I, I think you miss the, you know, you miss the ball flight, which is the fun of watching good players play. But, maybe three um, days. Maybe three you days. Know, if Freddie Couples came to town, I'd, I'd be out watching him play every day. He's a beautiful player to watch play golf. You and you and a lot of women, my other half included, at the train open in 2011, who followed him all 18 holes, and has still talks about it to this day. What an attractive and alluring chap Freddie Couples is. David, yeah. I wanted to get away from the Champions Tour for a moment. Of course, this career of yours has been quite amazing. Working for both the PGA Tour and the USGA over the, uh, over the years is an interesting mix in itself. I don't know. There's a whole lot of people have necessarily done that. Two very different organisations, and two organisations we see. 
not on particularly good terms the last couple of years, the anchoring debate, the TV announcements about things with them and trouble with the PGA and the USGA and, and things at the top don't look to be particularly um, friendly at the moment amongst those sort of big players in golf. What's your take on the current state of relationships between, say, the USGA and PGA and the USGA and the PGA Tour? Given that the PGA Tour and the PGA, who have been formerly not the best of friends, seem to have come together in an alliance a couple of weeks ago to announce huge purses for their two flagship events, and maybe they're now joining forces. What, what's going on with the politics of the game at the top? Well, you know, the, over in this country, you know, clearly those three groups, and I hate to omit the, the LPGA, but, but clearly the PGA Tour, PGA of America, and USGA are the, are the three big players, and uh, they're, they're political monsters, uh, it's, it's sort of like the White House over here, and the, and our House of Representatives and tongue, all that stuff. It's it's uh, it's really big. It's big business, it, and uh, they play politics among each other. And uh, you know, the, the, everybody said that uh, the USJ announcing the Fox Television deal during the week of the PGA Championship was disrespectful. Uh, they they don't. They don't really think about this stuff. It's big business, and I, I think that you know it's interesting with the law, with the with the uh, anchoring thing going on earlier this year that, that the tour slash Fincham were against uh, against banning it. Well, because they said, well, we we should make our own rules, things like that. Well, the fact of the matter is. The USGA settles all rules disputes. If the rules guys out on tour have some tough ruling, they'll call the USGA to either get input to get what the ruling is, but the USGA is really the, the final arbitrator with the rules. If the tour goes on its own with, the, with any of those rules, including anchoring, then the USGA says, sorry, we can't help you on any rule stuff because you got to play by all the rules, not just you can't cherry-pick the rules. So Tim had to, Fincham had to take this anchoring thing the way the players wanted him to take it. But the fact of the matter was, I don't think he ever thought that they would that they would go against the USGA on the anchoring thing. You know, Tim, uh, Dean Beeman tried to do that back in the 80s with the groove thing and paint, and that, that didn't work. Uh, the, the the PGA of America also in the, on the anchoring deal, their president said, was was lobbying for his uh, members who are selling putters in golf shops, and the the putter sale increased due to long putters, be it the, the long one or the uh, belly putter, increased because of players using those, and if they, all of a sudden they can't anchor the club. Some of them are going to figure out how to use the longer belly putter without anchoring, but the majority of, of golfers are just going to say, well, that's all right. I just got to go back to my short putter. So they're, so the PGA Club Pro putter sales are going back down the tubes again. Uh, and the USGA, well, they seem to be a, a, a nonprofit that's got more money than they, than, <laughs> right. you know, a Fortune 500 company coming in next year. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's just a cyclical thing over here also with those three groups. Uh, they're all, they all have to serve their, their members or, or their group. And, and, uh, 
um, it's 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 a very political. They're all political. They, they all have their own agendas. Is the game better served, David, by having that sort of? And there's an argument about you know if you have some political tension between a you know a three pronged group who sort of sort of run the game broadly speaking, for want of a better better term, between those three, is it better to actually have a bit of tension between all those three where they all keep each other honest? than all getting along famously and agreeing about everything. Is there a case to be made that this is actually a healthy thing? Well, yeah, I, I think there, there are times when, when it's healthy. It's sort of like how the U.S. government works or doesn't work now. <laughs> but there's a, series, there's a series of checks and balances, supposedly, and a lot of times it gets wrapped around the axle like it has recently in, our, in the United States. But, uh, uh, yeah, but if, if the... If the tour would just sign off on everything the USGA did, uh, it wouldn't be right. And, and the tour does have representatives who sit as consultants on these rules matters, including equipment, but ultimately they don't have a vote because it'd be a conflict of interest. Which makes it, very interesting, makes it very interesting, David, as Shaq's pointed out a number of times, that they seem to have no idea that the anchoring ban was going to be <laughs> was, was coming, which was, uh, was the claim that they made. Um, the other thing, of course, that is a point of contention amongst all is the distance of the golf ball. This is a topic that everyone who comes on this show needs to be asked about, and it comes under equipment and those, <laughs> those sorts of things. Shaq's just reminded me on our little back-end system here that we have that, uh, that we wanted to discuss this topic just as I was about to bring it up. But, of course, sure. it's something we talk about all the time, and there's, I think it'd be fair to say it seems clear that all of us who are sitting here on this side of the panel uh, think that the golf ball goes too far, particularly for professionals. You've been around the game for a long time, David. Firstly, are we claiming Chicken Little style that the sky is falling when it's not? Does the ball not go as far as what we're suggesting? And B, uh, if it does or it doesn't, what should or shouldn't perhaps be done about it? You must have talked about this issue over the years with people. Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Well, you know, I guess it was back in about 2000 that, that the big ball company, golf ball company, Kushner, came out with their uh, their three three piece non wound ball and four piece non wound ball called Pro V one or Pro V one X. And so that I think is the was the leap of of distance. And when when I think people argue that the USJ lost control. Well they, you know they lost control with the golf ball according to those people who believe they lost control with the ball and the club head. Uh, the clubhead was was a little bit earlier, I guess, in the late '90s. But um, <laughs> having been a a a, a um, I actually was a benef- I was a beneficiary of, of equipment. I, you know, I, I've never hit the ball as far as I as I did, and and so it helped me a lot. But um, there there seems to be you know, Marion. The way they the USJ had to trick up a, a, a very classic golf course with longer tees and funny pin placements and things like that it seems a shame. Um, can you put can you get get the uh, horse back in the barn? I, I don't know that you can now. Is it worth um, trying? Don't I'm it? not. Does it need to be put back in the barn? I'm would, sorry? It be, would it be better for the for the game if we tried to put the horse? Back in the barn, it's a complicated issue. But is it time to split the rules? Should professionals play by different rules to amateurs as far as equipment goes? You know, there's some very good arguments for it, but I'm still against playing separate rules for professionals and, and high competitive golf. 
Why? You know the one ball rule, the one ball rule, and the and the and the different grooves for you know wedges are one thing, but um, I I um, boy, I tell you, I'm a member of a course in Charlotte, Quail Hollow, that uh, hosts the Wells Fargo Championship, and you know just this winter or just this past fall. We added about 75 more yards to the course. I don't play those tees. I have the right. option. I don't play all the way back anymore at Quail Hollow because it's gotten to be 7,500 yards, and they're 500-yard par fours and 230-yard par four, par threes. I, I just don't find any fun in that. But I'm also not Adam Scott or Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods. I, I can't. I can't. My swing speed doesn't doesn't uh, get the the distance that I that those guys can get. I, so I, I I sort of fall out. I don't think now there's an, it's all right now. I, I I just hope I know the manufacturers have got you know rocket scientists trying to figure out one more millimeter of length for golf balls and and club club heads and and I guess they're doing a, a reasonably good job with it because. All you see are new clubs and new golf balls coming out all the time. Hmm. I wonder whether we as golfers need to take some responsibility, David. It seems to keep selling, doesn't it? We all had this complaint when, you know, Lady Di died in the tunnel. There was a real turning on the tabloid press who sort of hounded mm -hmm. her with photographers. Of course, the people who are hounding the tabloid magazines are the same ones who were buying it the week before because it had Diana on the cover. And we as golfers complain about it, but really we buy the distance marketing don't we that's what's been yeah. successful for the club companies you know the public says oh yeah i want to yeah, yeah yeah for for some reason the 15 handicapper still buys all that stuff mm. the, the the professional golfer gets his stuff free or even gets paid mm. to play it so so and they're the ones that really can you know you you've got to have a swing speed of, with a driver of i'd say 100 miles an hour 105 miles an hour to actually take advantage of any of all this new technology, I would say, for distant distance. Mm. So, yeah, indeed. Of course, the interesting thing about it, isn't it, Shaq? The manufacturers will say that you know we shouldn't be limited, or you know that this is what sells, this is what people want, etc. The statistics of the game say the participation's been going down. So, how does that argument? Yeah, the, the equipment's better than it's ever been, and the game is growing. So. They're, the arguments are fairly weak. Uh, their argument has a better chance if there were two sets of rules that they could make whatever it is they want. They can make whatever they want today. It just it would be labeled non-conforming, and nobody seems to really. None of the major companies want to take that step for whatever reason. Um, and, and I guess it's just because they view golf consumers as people who respect the rules and value the rules, and, and therefore would not want to be buying non-conforming stuff all but these threads tie in don't they the rules and the the, the 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 culture of the game and all those sorts of things Clates, i think you were going to chime in there and you're always interesting on this topic you had a thought i suspect i oh, know i just think that the most important thing you know we watched raw melbourne yesterday uh, and my argument about bifurcating the rule and pulling it back for pros is that you watch great golf courses and if Alison mckenzie came back and saw all those masterpieces he built he would just shake his head at the complete loss of his intent of the way the holes were meant to play. You, you know, you watch guys playing this, the great sixth hole at Royal Melbourne and not even thinking about whether they can carry the bunkers on the corner and then hitting wedges and nine-irons into the green that, you know, when, when Jeff Ogilvie and I played it last year with the Ballada ball and a wooden driver to drive on a four-iron. And it was 
you know, in terms of watching golf, I'd much rather, you know, the holes that were most fun to watch yesterday were the, were the short drivable par four, the 10th on the West Course, and the long holes where they're actually hitting three and four irons. And, mm. you know, for me, it makes the game more interesting to watch, and it makes, you know, it gets back some of the intent of the great architects. It's just it's awful to watch the great holes at Royal Melbourne guys hitting waiters to them when they were clearly when Mackenzie designed them. He was designing them for long irons and fellow woods and, David, you mentioned that in your 40s before you joined the Champions Tour and turned pro for the second time, you played with a lot of the college golfers, the Luke Donalds and Phil Mickelsons and Aaron Baddeley and those sorts of things. At that time, can you recall what was the difference distance in distance between you and them? And have you played with any of those calibre of players sort of recently or during your 50s, and did you notice any difference? I know Clates has told us that Jeff Ogilvie comfortably drives at 70 yards past him with the driver, generally, on average which is an enormous difference. I can't imagine if you went back 50 years, whether a, a, a 50-year-old professional and a 30-year-old professional, there'd be that much of a difference. Have you seen a change? Can you recall in your 40s what the distance difference perhaps was and what it might be now? Yeah, going back to my 40s, it would have, I guess the preeminent amateur player I played with, well, there are two of them, Duvall, David Duvall and uh, Phil Mickelson. And uh, Phil who would have been 18 and I would have been 30, what would I have been, 37, 36 maybe the first time I played with him. Um, he Phil could drive the ball 20, 25 yards past me. Uh, now, if you would come into this year, I think I drive the ball 280 yards and Phil drives the ball probably 300 yards. So it's probably about the same. We. Phil is now, what, 43 years old, I guess. Now, Duvall, David Duvall is a little bit longer than Phil. In fact, I, I commented that David, the sound of, and the trajectory of the flight of David, even in college, was, was as good as I've ever seen in my life. Very tight and very long. and could hit a, You know, he could take a six iron, he could hit 140 yards, he could hit 210 yards. It was that kind of ability he had. But... Um, uh, you know, and back in the years, in, the, in those years that I first played with Phil, I want to say we were playing. We had just gone to to metal, and the club heads were, you know, those little tiny things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they were. It was a, it was the start of metal in 1989, as I recall. And uh, Phil was the first one with a 60 degree wedge, for example. Thing, all these things like that were going on, but uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I play some with, with Webb Simpson here at Quail Hollow, and and Webb is probably about 10, 10 to fifteen yards past me. So, are you long for your for sixty two? Are you a no, long hitter? Well, Have you been a long hitter? Well, it's been interesting. I, I, I've noticed the last couple of years that. In my in my fifties, particularly up to about fifty eight or nine, that I would probably be the longest or second longest in my group of three, and now I am the shortest in my group of three. Usually, maybe second, but never the longest. I mean, I, Kenny Perry can hit it twenty five. Kenny Perry and Fred Couples can hit twenty five thirty yards past past me, and and that equates to you know, a nine iron that they're hitting and I'm trying to hit a six iron in there. So that it's sort of like Jack Nicklaus, 
how he could outplay everybody because he's, because he could drive the ball so long and straight. Well, both Freddie and, and Kenny can drive the ball long and straight. So. And Norman, too. Sorry, Shaq, I think you were... Uh... And Norman, yes. And Greg, who really didn't didn't play a whole lot of golf, did he, with metal? You know, his, his, his great years, weren't they with Wood? Pretty 1986 much. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, he was at his best, Clates, wasn't he, with Wood? He certainly separated himself much more with Wood and the, yeah. the field court once that, the medal started. I think he won that. Well he, well, he won that open at St George's with a Cobra driver in '93, so he'd switched Wood in the. Yeah, he was using a wooden driver at St Andrews in 1990, so somewhere in that two year period, he switched to metal. It happened very quickly, didn't it, Clates, yeah. if I recall. That it, it, we were all using wood one year, and then the next year, nobody used wood. Everybody used metal. It was pretty quick, the changeover, if I recall. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, what was the last – was, was Jose the last player to win a major with a wooden driver? Yeah, Jose or, or Davis Love, Davis, mate. Davis Love, yeah. Did he, carry, he did carry it in in 97? Yeah. 97, yeah. Yeah, and he was – and he carried a one-iron <laughs> at the time too, I think, David Eagle. When was the last time you saw a one-iron in a player's bag? Well, we have Joey Cinderlar who keeps one. You know, nowadays wow. a, a three iron is, is pretty hard to find. And I, my three iron I use would chip out from underneath tree limbs usually. <laughs> <laughs> or in the in the tomato garden when the wife hasn't got enough steaks. But the tomato. What's your, what do you think about that and, and hybrids and all the, the way the game has changed at the top level? And you're quite right. It's not uncommon to see a PGA Tour player whose longest iron might be a five iron. I think Y.E. Yang carries hybrids. From four iron up, so his longest iron is a five iron. Is that right, David? Should a professional golfer well, well, have to hit a three iron? Isn't that part of the game? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, way way back, there was there was a Canadian club maker named uh, Stan Leonard. I think it was Stan Leonard. Jeff is Stan Thompson, the architect, and Stan Leonard. Yeah, the Stanley golfer, Thompson's the, club, the architect. The, uh, club yeah. And he had this line of woods called Ginty. They went all the way up to like a fifteen wood. So, so, so that high tech has been out there for fifty, sixty years. There, I, I was talking to a, a fellow, a, a you know, a ten handicapper the other day, and he's not gone to hybrid. So I just can't hit a hybrid. Well, what does he have? He has an eleven wood. So, mm. um, and that's not a know, hybrid. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, you know I can remember Jack Nicholas, Greg Norman, uh, all those uh, Tom Weisskopf, two woods, and it started with the one iron as we were talking about it a minute ago, and and now you see maybe two woods, and you might see as many as four hybrids. I don't know how they figure out how to put the cover, club covers on all that stuff. I I play with one hybrid, one fairway, and one driver. I I still play with a three iron, albeit. It's a hollow muscle back three iron. So there's some technology to get the ball up in the air with. Mm. Clates, what do you um, reckon? I, I think I think it's I think it's great that there's all this technology. I mean, the manufacturers have continually figured out a way to make money by selling new equipment, mm-hmm. coming out with this new stuff, and and the hybrids seem to be the way to go. And and it really hasn't hasn't uh, decreased much as long as they've been out. Yeah. So, Clates, what do you reckon? Uh, Should professional golfers have to be able to hit a long iron? Shouldn't that be a prerequisite yeah. to be well, a touring professional? <laughs> this will be silly, but, um, yeah, th- three iron should be compulsory. I mean, a blade, I mean, everyone should have to carry a Jack Nicklaus circa 1975 McGregor three iron and play with it. 
and, and, and you know, <laughs> otherwise use thirteen clubs. But yeah, yeah, I think any line was being a part of a pro. I, you know, I hate seeing this. I mean, you know, it's that's a it's an unrealistic attitude. But for me, if you're a pro, you better be able to three iron. It's like so, a driver's license, close. There should be a test yeah. every year. Once a year, you have to go to the PGA Academy and hit a two or a three iron and hit it a, with a certain flight. Otherwise, they take your card off you. Yeah, and in fairness, I think if they played, you know, more golf on links courses and and and, and windy places, then the, the three iron would come back into the bag. It's you know, it's that pro golf is played on so much, you know, long, soft, windless golf courses that you've got to get the thing up in the air, and it's much easier with a hybrid. But if you went back to playing Muirfield and Carnoustie and Royal Melbourne every week, you would find that players would find much more use for a three-iron because you need that low running sort of shot. But David, as, as a, much the golf courses as anything yeah. else. As a player, do you think that's true? You play in the US, of course, which is who we blame for this style of golf, this aerial style of golf. It's all the Americans' fault. Do you think Clayton is right there? Is that true that uh, part of it is just – it's not that pros can't hit three irons. It just makes more sense to have a hybrid that goes higher and stops quicker. Well, I, I, was, I was reading something about Tom Watson back when in his heyday at British Open, and, uh, you know, Tom never – changed his ball flight he just wanted to hit the ball solid and uh, he had I think on the 71st hole at, at, at the old course at St. Andrews he'd driven the ball uh, he had a good drive but was on up one of those little dolomites or whatever on the right side of the fairway and couldn't keep his two or three iron down because he didn't know how to hit it down and and it cluttered out next to the to the wall but um, uh, you there are there 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 are some guys that uh, seem to have have it, it just hitting the hybrid isn't an, an automatic deal whatsoever. I mean, it still takes skill, talent to, to overcome it to, to hit a good shot with it because there's some tendencies a hybrid has a ball flight. The hybrid seems that you hit the ball kind of high and torque it off to the hook the ball, if you will. Mm-hmm. So there is some there is some skill in that. Not as much as there is hitting a two or three iron. And by the way, your Adam Scott, your Aussie, he does play with a two iron and a three iron. Obviously. That's right. So as does Tiger. You must, be, pr- you must yeah. be proud of that. <laughs> well, he uses the long putter, so it's all kind of balanced out, David. Well, yeah. He, it all, it's cancelled out, isn't it? I forgot that. But as, as, You're right. As a, ball, as a golfer to watch, and Jeff Ogilvy, I'm pretty sure, probably still carries at least a three iron. Clates, maybe a two, I'm not sure. but Jeff has, a two, Jeff has two woods and a two iron, yeah, and a so, short putt. So, so he gets all the votes. Yeah, and to, to watch that. He a 60 degree sandwich. Hey? Although he does have a 60 degree sandwich. That's cheating a little there, but that's fine. Uh, cut his back. I think Watson, Watson still plays with a 56, and, and Nicholas too, hmm. when they come out. Do pros talk about this stuff, David, amongst themselves? Do you ever find yourself in conversations with other guys on the Champions Tour about this sort of thing? Um, yeah, you know, professional golf, and there's not a lot of socializing. There are some guys that, you know, are, are pretty astute with it. Uh, Brad Faxon over here, for example, is very astute with equipment. Nick Price is very astute with equipment. Uh, but generally, you know, the, the way the tournament works is, all the manufacturers come out and, and give the newest stuff out and try to get as much of it into people's hands so hopefully they'll go through the equipment survey with it. 
So, so uh, yeah, but I, I've always liked to tinker with equipment, but uh, I never tinker with it at a tournament site. I, I decide what I'm going to go travel with, and if I do, if they do give me something, I'll hold off on trying until I get back home. You know, I won't, I won't mess with it. It's, it's just. It's too it's too confusing for me. I I can't multitask like that. Yeah, indeed. And of course, you've got to get everything approved by your wife, according to your my shot last month in the digest as well. She's been a key part of <laughs> keeping your game on track, which is which is fantastic, David. It's been lovely to talk to you. <clears throat> Pardon me, as Jeff has just pointed out, we have kept you long enough. This always happens. I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> but it's been fabulous to have you aboard and listen to some of your insights and thoughts from a from a pretty happy time i suspect and a long time in the game so thanks for joining us today well i enjoyed it very much guys thanks so much for including me no, thanks, really david. all right crazy. thanks david <clears throat> and of course pardon me to you over there jeff we thank you as always for taking the time of course thank you and clate's been fabulous to hear your thoughts and good luck out at the golf today going off to watch jeff ogilvy i suspect who's turning off in a few minutes so thanks man Yep, good stuff. And that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed it. We will, of course, be back in a couple of weeks to do it all again, and there'll be plenty to talk about as our Australian summer unfolds down here. Look forward to your company then on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.